I'll kind of tell you where we left off last week was with this word, gegomen, gegomen. Kind of set the stage for you. At the very end of chapter 16, you have this word that kind of, in my mind, illustrates the dichotomy of what it means as a Christian to live in the now and the not yet, okay? We talked about this last week. Because where chapter 16 ends up, it takes you to the very end of time, and it shows you Armageddon, and it shows you that the, the, the beast and the beasts, you know, um, the, the, the dragon and, and the agencies that are coming against God ultimately are destroyed, okay? And so one of the dichotomies that we face as Christians all the time is, is the question, you know, well, if, if God has won, if he's, if, he's, if he's the winner of this battle, why does it look like he's losing, right? And, and the reality is, you, you know, you look at the United States. Well, I mean, take, take Grand Island, and you, you look at the number of people uh, that are outside of the body of Christ, uh, and you think, you know, that's, that's the fastest growing demographic in this little Midwestern, central Nebraska city, Right? A city that arguably, you take the Midwest, built on the, the, the bedrock of faith. So here we are, indicative of what's going on in amazing ways throughout the United States. And you think, well, isn't God winning? Uh, you turn on the television and you see the stuff that's going on. And, and you, you, you just recoil as you watch horror after horror. And you think, well, hasn't God won? Well, last week we looked at these, these two words that I think kind of established the, the dichotomy, the now and the not yet. The first word is the word from the cross, tetelestai. And I remember we said last week, the last word that Jesus speaks is the word tetelestai, translated in your Bibles, it is finished, right? So what is Jesus really saying is, it's done. The war is over, okay? Um, my death on the cross, my payment of the blood sacrifice has now been accomplished. It, it is that act in history that everything from the beginning of time pointed forward to and everything until the end of time will point back to, all right? So in a real way, we can say we live in the now, uh, the victory is accomplished. It's done, it's over with, our, our enemy is defeated. Uh, for each one of us as individuals, that becomes true at that point, that faith receives the promise of God, okay? I always, I always try to get this straight in people's minds, that the death of Jesus Christ was for all men of all time, not one single person excluded from that, right? The application of that death, in other words, you, you made that payment, but the application of that payment to my account happens when? when I am brought to faith, and through faith I trust and believe. Yep, that payment has set me free. Uh, so you have a lot of people in, in the world today that we would say, well, Jesus did pay for your sins, but that payment is not attributed to your account. And so you still remain under the curse of sin. It won't be attributed to your account until, what, faith happens inside of you, and you, what, that faith trusts and believes that, yes, that, that death on the cross was for, for me. So for us, we live in the now, wherein we're able to say that death, that death on the cross objectively paid the price for my sins, 
and then through faith subjectively became mine. I live in the now of a victory, but not yet. That's the second word. The second word we looked at last week was the word gegomen, which means it is done, all right? So think of the contrast there. It is finished. The payment has been made. Now, Revelation is taking us to that point in history when now what? The collapse of Satan, the destruction of his empire, the binding, complete binding of Satan takes place, and now we're able to say, ah, okay, now there will be no more war, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more sadness, we will live with God for eternity, it is done, all right? When does that happen? Well, it happens at the end of time with the return of Jesus Christ, which is where the revelation has taken us. So when you get to the end of chapter 16, you're kind of at that point in the book where you've, you've been making these circles around and around and around and looking at that, that truth that we're in the, the now and the, the not yet, that during this time, up until Jesus' return, God is at work seeking to bring people to faith, trying to break men's stubbornness, right? When you reach the end of chapter 16, Armageddon happens and it is, it is done as declared. And now you, now you begin kind of what I call the, the wind down in the book, okay? And last week we kind of outlined this. There's four scenes that make up the rest of the book of the Revelation. So the first scene, the one that we'll kind of dive into today, chapter 17, is, is just a specific look at the destruction of the, I call them the henchmen, the beasts, right, of Satan and of Satan himself, okay? So that's, that's kind of the, the first one. Predominant focus in chapter 17 is going to be on the, the beast and in particular the political beast, all right? That'll be where our focus predominantly is. Then we'll move into to, to, uh, scene number two, and we get kind of a reprieve, and we stop, and we sing a song of victory. We go, okay, yes, God is victorious over the beast. Then, in scene number three, we'll move on to the overthrow of the dragon. Okay? Not only are your agencies overthrown, but now you who have ruled over these agencies, you dragon, you're overthrown. Focus is on the dragon. And then in the last scene, you get to that beautiful part of the revelation that's so often quoted at, at, at funerals because it paints that picture for us of eternity. What does eternity look like? And it gives us a little bit of insight. And I think you'll love this because when you get to the end of Revelation, uh, it uses, some, again, some symbolic language to help us get a sense of what it means to live on a new earth with God. Okay? Yet at the same time, it, it, it's not meant to try to spell out for us, well, this is physically what new earth is going to look like. So we're going to hear some language that's, again, it's, it's, it's symbolic, and it's teaching us this is what life in relationship with Jesus Christ for eternity is going to look like. What I love about it is it helps, it's, it's corrective. It helps correct what's in a lot of people's minds about, you know, where do I go when I die, and what does it mean to be in heaven, and, and what does it mean to live forever? And I, I just, as I listen to Christians over my many, many years of life, I think, we use language that really should just get reframed a little bit so that it's more accurate to what God has in store for us. So we'll, we'll get there with what I call the marriage feast of the Lamb and the restoration of the new earth.
Okay, let's dig in. Let's go to chapter 17. And, and you'll notice it starts off with one of the seven angels that we've just seen, one of the angels that had poured out uh, the, the bowls of wrath. And this angel comes, uh, John says, uh, to me, and, and he speaks these words, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Come and I will show you the, the great judgment of the, the prostitute, okay? I, I uh, was looking at this and, and kind of laughing. Um, the word for judgment uh, in Greek is kind of a fun word. It's uh, krema. And so we, we kind of get an, an English word from that. Um, when I talk to Dan Narano, he says there's more and more people that want to have cremation, right? And so you can kind of hear that at the beginning. Krema, cremation. Let me show you the cremation of the great prostitute, right? I'm going to show you what's going to happen. That at the end, the prostitute gets creamed is a good way, you know, for us to say it. It's a judgment. It's a righteous judgment against the prostitute. Notice that the prostitute is seated on many waters. Just say a couple of words about um, this, this imagery that we're getting. Why use the language of prostitute? Why would you use the language of prostitute? Okay. When we think of a prostitute, probably the first word that comes to our mind is sex. Right? What do, what do prostitutes do? They sell sex. That's kind of what we think of. Well, sex is a physical act, but there's a spiritual dimension to it. Okay? And what, what I want you to see as we go through this section is that when you talk about the prostitute and prostitution in the Revelation, we're not just talking about physical sex. We're talking about that intimacy side of things because what, what, what the prostitute represents and what prostitution represents is a violation of this, the marriage feast. Okay? It takes you all the way back to the very fundamentals of Scripture. I mean, all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis when God is making human beings. And he says, what, I have, I have made you for me. That becomes explicit in the book of Colossians where we're told that we were made by Jesus for Jesus. Okay? So Christianity is not a thing it's not, I go to church. It's not, I, I have these rituals. Those, those all underlie something greater than, than the acts themselves. They underlie the fact that Christianity is about what? A, a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. A marriage, literally, that is finally culminated at the very end of time. Okay? So when you talk about and use the imagery of prostitution and a prostitute, what we're really saying is prostitution is that spiritual act by which people give themselves over to someone or something other than God. Literally what? Idolatry. I give myself over to someone or something other than God. I marry, if you will, something or someone other than God. And that's really the picture that, that John wants to paint here is the picture of, of this political beast, if you will, that calls upon the citizenry to give themselves 
over to, to become married to, to, to idolize some, something other than uh, Jesus Christ, okay? Let's kind of walk through this and just see the whole of the, the imagery here. Notice he says this, this prostitute is seated on many waters, okay? Um, we're going to be told here pretty shortly in this, this chapter that the harlot is specifically going to be identified with Babylon. Okay. Uh, go ahead and just jump over to verse number five, and let's just establish this right away. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes. Okay, We'll come back to that, but I just want you to, to make this... this uh, connotation that the prostitute we're looking at is is identified with Babylon okay so let me let me make sense of two things for you because the harlot is sitting upon many waters the harlot for nace is Babylon if I'm listening to John speak these words for the first time what do I know about Babylon what do I know about it well, I know that it was this ancient civilization, right? That that literally God used as his instrument to capture Israel, take Israel into captivity, and um, uh, keep Israel in captivity during an extended period of time during which what God is trying to get Israel's attention. You, Israel, have gone astray from me, so I'm going to take this pagan country, and I'm going to use that pagan country to do something that is unfathomable to you, to actually crush you, so that your prideful human spirit will come back to me, okay? So if I'm, if I'm a Jew, many of the people listening to John are converted Jews, they know Babylon. What does Babylon represent? Everything evil. I mean, one of the most pagan Sick cultures in the world, right? Um, I was trying to think of this when I was, I was kind of reading through this, thinking, you know, today, if we were to identify Babylon, what would that be? What, where, if, you had to, if I could give you a pen and a globe and say, I want you to stick that pen in some place that just represents to you something that is just pagan yuck, um, just stands against everything that God represents. Where would you stick that pen? Well, listen to me. The, the people listening to John for the first time say these words. They know that Babylon as a culture is gone, right? That's done. That's past history. So what was Babylon to them? Who is the prostitute? Well, for them, the prostitute was Rome, Right? In other words, I would hear John say there's this harlot that's sitting upon the many waters. Who is that harlot? Well, I'm living in it. It's Rome. Look at this, this sick culture, right? Um, always interesting to me when you study Roman history, you know, Rome really founded upon some, some ethics that over the course of time get left behind. And... Um, by the time you hear John, Rome has become a really a decadent place, okay? 
Uh, so it would be easy for the listeners of this to say, oh, I know who that harlot is. We're living, we're living in it right now. It's, it's Rome, and Rome is, is, is seated upon the many waters, and this harlot is going to get its judgment. God is going to cream it, right? Now, we're living in a time that's a few years beyond the Revelation. For us, we hear the word Babylon or Rome, and we would say, all those, those are past civilizations. What is the great harlot today? Okay. Always interesting to me to just listen in on that question. If I gave you a pen and a globe, and I said, I want you to go find a place on earth that represents one of the most pagan, disgusting, anti-God places in the world, where would you put your Kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Be a fun exercise to try. Do you know how, by the way, the Islamic nations answer that question? What is the great harlot? What are we called? USA is called the Great Babylon by Islam today. If if I if I got together with an Islamic Imam and I said, Revelation talks about Babylon the Great, the harlot. Who is that? Without hesitation, any imam would say, that's the United States of America. Why would they say that? Would any of you stick your pen in the United States of America? You know, I mean, a lot of us would be like, oh, no, no, not in the United States. We're, we're a Christian country. I was thinking about this this week because um, we're, we're kind of going through this in our family. Um, you know, uh, when, when a woman becomes pregnant, I've got a baby. In America today, it's legal for you to, to, to kill that baby whenever you want. I mean, um, there's, there's laws that have been tried to be set in place where we've got to protect this baby up to, to this stage. But, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty much. I mean, there, there's a, a line I can cross, but I, I can kill that baby. What if I'm a woman that's pregnant with a baby and my baby needs help? I need you to treat my baby. You know, it's illegal for the doctor to do that. We can help you, the mama. We can sew your cervix up and we can kind of try to keep the baby in there. We, but we can't actually provide help for the baby till you reach this cross hole because it's not, a, it's not a, really a baby. What is the great harlot? Do you know that we, li we kind of live comfortably with that or we try to? kind of push it to the side till it enters your family. And when it enters your family, you think to yourself, what, what, how did we get to a place like, how did a Christian nation get to a place where that's, that's the case? Okay. So the real answer to the question is, when you, when you look at Revelation, it's meant, all the symbols are meant to be very broad in nature. So the great harlot, was it Babylon? Yes. Uh, prior to Babylon, you know, w w were there pagan cultures? Yes. Was it Rome? Yes. Is it the United States of America today? Yes. Is it arguably, you know, China? Yes. It's a broad symbol. What it's meant to recognize is the fact that the, 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 the beast, this, this harlot beast, is one that is a political reign that is calling upon its citizenry to do what? To get married to someone other than Jesus Christ. We want you seeking out 
and putting your life into something and someone other than God. And so our, in our culture today, when I turn on the television, am I surprised that there's literally nothing on it that talks about who I am, who, whose image I was made in, what I was made for, where everything is going. Am I surprised by that? No. In fact, I turn on the TV and what do I hear? The world politics says what's important. Stock market, right? It's pretty, pretty important, okay? Uh, how, how are you going to secure your future? What's going on internationally between countries that could threaten your well-being? What am I called to seek after? Life, liberty, and the pursuit Seek after the things of this world. Make them yours. And so we get caught up in it, swept up in a culture that's calling us, this is what you need. Get married to this. This is what's important to you. When honestly, most of what the, well, <laughs> pretty much all of what the world sets in front of you and says this is important is not. And we get swept into it. And our lives get entangled in it. And this is the picture that we're getting painted of is there's this harlot that's going to get judged because the whole focus of the harlot is to do what? Is to call people to get married to someone or something other than the one who made you and made you for himself. Sitting upon many waters. Well, there's three things we could say there. The waters. Are they literal waters? Well, on one hand, we could say Babylon was a place of many waters. Right? Uh, if we could take a trip back into ancient Babylon, one of the things that they were famous for were their floating gardens and the canals that went through Babylon. Uh, we have the Euphrates that it accesses, so many waters, yes. But is there something more to the symbol? Yes. We're going to be told, as, as we'll get into this here in a minute, that the many waters also represent many nations. That's why I think it's fair to say that this harlot is not just one specific, you know, country or political regime. The beast is greater than that. It's multiple regimes that have existed, do exist today, and sparing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will exist tomorrow up until that time when Jesus does return. All of them. So many people, many nations deceived by the harlot come and marry someone or something other than Jesus Christ. It's also interesting when you, when you look at the symbolism of waters. In the Old Testament uh, language, waters, the ocean particularly, became associated with sin, a place of death, a place of darkness that I get sucked into and there's no coming out of it. And so all three of those really apply here when I look at it. Here's this angel that says, just come over here, John, and I want you to see this. I want you to see what's getting ready to happen. This harlot who is over many peoples, many nations will be deceived, is calling out, calling out, come and marry someone or something other than Jesus Christ. He continues to paint that picture in, in, in this next verse, verse 2. He says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed it's our English texts always say it, sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. Okay? Again, let me go back to the Greek words here so you don't just get 
you know, stuck in the physicalness of this. With whom the kings of the earth have committed, I'm just going to use a different word here, spiritual adultery. Okay, your English text, what does it say? With whom the kings of the earth have committed what? Sexual immorality. I'm substituting some words because I think they capture better the essence of the Greek here. With whom the kings of the earth have committed spiritual adultery. This is not just sex. This is not a picture of a bunch of kings who went out and had sex. <laughs> no. This is a picture of kings who are committing what? Spiritual adultery. Why, why would I say it that way? Think about the role of a king. What is a king called to do? Okay? Remember that uh, when, you, when you look at the book of Genesis, uh, all the way up through the Tower of Babel, right? If, if you look at it, you see God acting in a universal way amongst men, okay? There is no king. If we could land as aliens on planet Earth back in that time and say, take us to your king, every person on Earth would say, okay, let's go talk to God because he's our king. That's it, right? At Babel, something happens, right? At Babel, God places another curse upon men who have reached new heights, pardon the pun, <laughs> Tower of Babel, have reached new heights of trying to be, be gods themselves. And God says, I'll place you under another curse. I'm going to, to redistribute you. And I will give you different tongues and I will separate you from one another. All right? That you may not carry out this evil and claim to be God. Post-Babel, now you have the development of this singular country, Israel, through whom God chooses to work. All right? So up until Babel, God says, I'm going to work universally. After Babel, God says, now I'm going to work specifically through this country right here, Israel, to bring people to myself. Okay? As long as Israel remains a, a body of people under the king king's rule, Yahweh's rule, um, good. But they don't. Israel starts looking around at other nations as they begin to develop who establish kings. And Israel says, we want a king. What does God tell them? No, you don't. We want a king. God gives them a Saul. All right. What is the role of the king in Israel? It's all, we always think of a king, you think of politics, right? I'm a political ruler, so I, I set the taxes in place. I make sure. No, the, the primary rule of the king in Israel is what? It's a spiritual rule. Okay? If, I sat, if I sat Saul down, or I sat David down, or I sat one of the kings down, I said, let's look at your job description. What's number one on the list? Every king would say, my job is to spiritually lead this nation of people to come under the rulership of the king. God. He alone is king. Not me. I'm a human being. Okay? So the role of king is to do what? Is, is to call men to be married to the one who made you. Have this relationship. What are we being told here? The kings of the earth have committed what? Spiritual adultery with the harlot. 
Why? Because the harlot says, all, leave that to the churches. All that spiritual stuff, that's all church stuff. We've got to separate church and state. You know, this is the real world over here. Real world, real life, turn on your TV. That's real world stuff. Whatever you guys do over in that church, you know, sing those songs and blah, 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 blah. Pray a little bit. That's fine. Do that as much as you want. That's not real life. This is real life. We're going to call you to, to, to just engage in real life. And if you want to do some of that spiritual stuff, okay. You just flip-flop. You turn it upside down. And that is really what happens is the, 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 us, we as human beings are appealed to by the dragon who says, who really should be king in your life? You should. And what should you go after? What you want? What you desire? And so the kings now are committing what? Spiritual adultery with the harlot who is sitting upon many waters. Question for you this morning. How about Israel? Does Israel remain distinct from this or do they get swept up into it? And the answer is pretty simple. They get swept up into it. Okay? A couple of cross-references that just kind of help put this in perspective, I think helpful for the church today. The first is in this little crazy book in the Old Testament called Hosea. If you turn to the fourth chapter of Hosea, just flip over there for a minute. And this, by the way, is one of those Old Testament books that has deep American roots and ties. Um, quite often we'll actually sing this, uh, sing, right, we sing that, Oh, say, can you see? That's a, that's a whole different thing. You know, I always tell people, when you read Hosea, you are reading PG-13 stuff, right? You know that. Uh, if, you, if you haven't had these words in your ears uh, in a little while, um, just kind of just walk with me through. I'm just going to take you through a few verses. Go to verse number one first. I'm just going to do a couple of those and jump over to 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. What has the king done? What's the controversy? He says there is no faithfulness or covenantal love. Your Bibles will say steadfast love. And there is no knowledge of God in the land. Okay? It's not this kind of knowledge. It's this kind of knowledge. Something's going on in the land. What is it? Well, jump over to verse number 10, and you'll see it. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. I'm telling you what, you know, family devotion time, just pull this baby on, get your kids like, hey, who wants to read little Hosea here? Um, this is PG-13 stuff, right? Would not recommend this for devotions late at night. Would, like, Mama, what's a whore? Ask your father. <laughs> you know, no. Well, the whole book of, of Hosea is a story about what? This prophet. And God comes along to him and says, hey, I got a great idea for you. I want you to marry this whore. 
And he goes, that is not a great idea. That is a horrible idea. Why would that be a bad idea? Because she's a whore. She'll cheat on me. God says, well, marry her. So he marries her. What does she do? Cheats on him. He comes back to God. He goes, listen, God, I told you it was a bad idea. Marrying a whore, she cheated on me. What should I do? God says, marry her again. He's like, are you serious? What is this? This is one of the craziest books in the whole Bible. Everybody's like, why, why, would, why would God put a book like this in the Bible? Because it's not about, a, it's not about sex. Not at all about sex. What's it about? Spiritual adultery. What God was playing out in the physical world between this prophet and this whore, he's saying, here's what's going on, is I, God, have married a whore. It's you. I know this about you. You're going to commit adultery. And I married you anyway. And then you divorced me. And everything inside me should say what? Don't marry her again. Just be done with her. Guess what I did? I married her again. And I'll do it again and again. Because that's who I am. I'm a God who knows you're going to do what? Go out and spiritually commit adultery against me. And yet I still love you. And I will marry you again. And throughout our relationship, I'm going to seek as hard as I can to bring you back and bring you back and bring you back to myself. In the Old Testament, the book of Hosea is meant to say something to us. It's meant to say that what happens in our lives is we get wrapped up in what? Our culture. And our culture calls us to, to do what? To, to invest our lives in things that end up doing what? Taking us away from the, the, the relationship God wants us to have. Pastor, I'd love to, I love to, to get, get into this stuff more, but I'm a pretty busy guy. I really love to be, well, our family, we, we love to do all the spiritual kind of stuff, but, you know, we, we're going to make, we try to get there like we go to church once a month. I'm like, you go to church once a month? For goodness sakes. It's not about going to church. It's about a relationship. If I said to my wife, hey, dear wife, guess what? I'll get together with you once a month if I can make it. I don't think Ann would be like, awesome. That'll be great. Well, maybe she would. I don't know. <laughs> no, relationships, they what? They require what? Love and time and spending time. I'm committed to you, right? What happened to, what happened to us? We end up and do we do what? We commit spiritual adultery. This is the picture that Revelation is giving. Because he's saying there's spiritual whoredom that goes on. Not just outside of the church. This isn't just kings out there like weird, wacky kings. This is what? It's culture and political rules that tell you what's important in life. And everything human beings point, that's important in life. That's important in life. I mean, what we tell, teach our kids, for goodness sakes, we want them to go to Harvard. Really? To sit in classrooms and be told this is what's important in life? And I ended up picking up this, this week, I ended up picking up a book. And it just, and here's this, this guy that grows up, and he's a young guy, he's a, he's a neuroscientist, and he's, he's a surgeon that does surgery, you know, Brand, you, you'll get this better than me, on the brain. And he gets cancer. 
And through his book, you just walk right through this little story until he dies. His wife finished the book. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. And I looked at that book and I think to myself, here's this guy, he's brilliant. And he grew up with, with people that told, this is what's important in life. And he died without faith. He died never knowing who he really was. He died never knowing what he was really made for. And I look at our kids today and I think, how many of them really know? I mean, they go into schools and some counselor says, what do you want to be? And everything inside of us should say, I want to be what I was made to be by God. You know, that he actually formed me. He created a purpose for me. He put me in this place, in this time. He gave me his appointment. I, that's what I want to be. Oh, no, 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 that doesn't happen. No, what do you, let's take this test. What are your skills? What, what do you want to be? Hmm? I just told you I want to be what God wants me to be. Somehow, if we're going to get this into our kids, it, it, I'm just telling you, it ain't going to happen in Harvard. It's going to happen where? In your kitchens, in your living rooms. And when you're sitting on your knees praying and your, your kid's, you know, a teenager, and they walk by and they just <clears throat> roll their eyes, my crazy parents. But there's nothing more important that you did than got down on your knees and prayed for your kid at that time. Because when they're about 25 or 26 or 27, they go, oh. Crap. What am I doing with my life? And they remember that you were down on your knees. And it matters to them. And so what I'm saying to you is this is not just like some weird picture that we're being given here in the Revelation. It's us. And it's our lives. And it's a God who's saying, I'm going to destroy this harlot. But the harlot's at work. Outside and inside the church calling us to align ourselves to fall in love with stuff other than him. And he says, no, 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 you were made for me. You were made for a relationship with me. And that's where we find ourselves as John looks at this picture of this harlot who is being prepared for destruction. Let's pray. Lord God.